0: For those of you who are unaware of Bri, people dip their back tire into the back, into the Missouri River and then follow a predetermined route across Iowa and eventually uh, dip their front wheel into the Mississippi River and complete the event and and uh, i 've never really seen uh, this event uh, we've out the front window of where I work, I work on the corner of East Fourteenth and Broadway, you could see all these people just pouring down the road and and I, I started wondering how many of the people who start the race, or the ride, so to speak, complete the ride? And so I Googled it, 75%. 75% of those who, who start the ride, finish the ride. And that's really pretty good. I don't know if that, can, if that includes everyone who's riding on the beer bus or not, I don't know. Um, but uh, 75%. Um, a couple months ago, I ran into another statistic, which, which really made me sad, actually. And that is, in the US, 80% of all American Christians eventually backslide and walk away from Jesus. That means that only 20% are able to say with Paul in 2 Timothy 4:7, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. And it's heartbreaking for me to think that four out of f- every five people who pray a prayer of salvation would walk away from Jesus. But I have friends and family. And i know many of you do too who are currently walking away from jesus sprinting away from jesus and it made me think what are we doing wrong what are we doing wrong are there principles in the bible when when the gospel was growing by leaps and bounds that maybe we can apply to the work of god in america today and so if you have your bibles or phone Please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31, as we look at the message of Christ crucified. But first, let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts today from your word. I ask that you would increase our faith and that you would inspire us to share your good news in a way that would make an eternal impact for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. To give you a bit of background to the church in Corinth, Corinth was the wealthiest of the Greek city-states at this time. They openly pursued prosperity. They openly pursued a lot of pleasure. um, They had a navy, and they participated in wars involving other city-states like Sparta, for example. The land of Corinth was very fertile, and so the Corinthians always had lots to eat. The Corinthians also worshipped many different gods and goddesses, and had many religions. And in a way, when I look at Corinth, ancient Corinth, I think it very closely parallels, and it is very much like the United States today. So the first thing that we see in this passage is the frustration of philosophy. The frustration of philosophy. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 21 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached, to save those who believe. The philosophers of ancient Corinth, like many people today, openly rejected the message of Jesus as beneath them. You mean this Jewish convicted criminal who is given the death penalty of a slave is the hope of all the world? The Jews had a problem with Christ as well. You mean this Nazarene from a city that has been conquered in every foreign invasion? who not only didn't lead an army to conquer Rome, but died a cursed death on a tree. This Jesus is the Messiah. And both of these groups would probably say, surely you jest. To which Paul might have said, I don't jest and stop calling me <laughs> Philosophers, Philosophers try to change the world through their thinking. Roughly 300 years prior to this, you have Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, And their ideas went forth, and we see that things didn't really change. Things didn't really change. They had presented their philosophies to the world, and for 300 years, those philosophies had failed to change the souls of mankind. The philosophers and influencers of our day, like Malcolm Gladwell, or Jordan Peterson, or Andrew Humberman, or Oprah Winfrey. They have tried to change the hearts and minds of Americans for years, and nothing has changed. If anything, the problems we face in our world today are worse than when they started. In every way, philosophy has been revealed to be impotent in changing the heart. The second thing we see in this passage is the foundation of power, The Foundation of Power, verse 22 through 25, states, "...Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ, crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom." And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. I'm going to focus on verse 23. We preach Christ as the fulfillment of prophecy. The word Christ is a translation of the Hebrew word uh, Messiah. And the Bible speaks of the importance of Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament messianic prophecies as the secure foundation of our faith. There are many instances of these prophet, uh, of of people showing that the prophecies were fulfilled. On the road to Emmaus, in Luke 24, 25 through 27, Jesus said to the men who were walking, he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Later that day when Jesus was with his followers. He spoke to them in verse 44. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that was written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. It's interesting to me that Jesus mentions the Psalms. Uh, We recently were driving down the road and we passed a guy who was running on the sidewalk and he had his headphones on and it, his headphones were connected to a 1980s Walkman. And I know that it was a 1980s Walkman because that's the exact same Walkman that I had when I was a teenager. So I, and and, I'm, and I've, I've gotten in this habit of reading lips now that I'm suffering from tinnitus. And, and, I, and I could have sworn that he was singing to himself as he, was, as he was running along. I can feel it coming in the air tonight. Oh, Lord. And that song was in my head for the next two hours. And that song may, might be in your heads for the next two hours. I don't know. You're, you're welcome. But uh, <laughs> I was thinking about this. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he quotes Psalm 22, the first line of Psalm 22. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And maybe some of the audiophiles in the crowd who are watching this crucifixion had that song running through their head the rest of these of, until he died and maybe even long after that. And maybe they're realizing, oh my goodness, the lyrics of this psalm, this is what's happening right now. The messianic prophecies were being fulfilled right there and then. That Jesus was mocked that he was very thirsty, that he was scorned, that he was insulted, that his hands and feet would be pierced, that they would divide up his clothes and cast lots, something like modern dice, for his garment. And have you ever considered the odds involved? My dad was a math teacher, and so maybe this is just the way that my mind works, but I just want you you to think about this for just a second. What are the odds involved? What is the probability that this would be happening? A mathematician named Peter Stoner, which is a great name, although I can't complain about names, Uh, Peter Stoner computed the odds of Jesus fulfilling just eight, just eight of the Messianic prophecies. And he computed this as one chance in 94 quadrillion, 94 quadrillion, so thousand million, billion, trillion, quadrillion. You could never count up to one quadrillion in your life, by the way, you don't have time. You don't have time for that. And that's only the odds of fulfilling eight of the Old Testament prophecies. Did you know that Google tells us that there have only been 117 billion people who ever ever lived on the earth? So mathematically, you could prove that Jesus is the Son of God. Mathematically. Just by the odds involved. Jesus has, in fact, fulfilled over 100 Old Testament prophecies some written over a 1,000 years before they were fulfilled. Some written 800 years beforehand. Some written 500 years beforehand. Yes, we are saved by faith, but it is not a blind faith. You don't have to check your brain at the door. If we love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, as Jesus said in Mark twelve thirty. And if we are watching our life and doctrine closely, as we see in 1 Timothy 4.16, we should always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, as 1 Peter 3.15 tells us. I've been asked on multiple occasions. You know, we've got 4,000 religions in the world. How do you know that you're right? And I tell them, fulfilled prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy it's a unique phenomena. RS Foster has made a detailed study of comparative religions versus the prophecies of the Bible and in his book The Supernatural Book, he comments, "No well accredited prophecy is found in any other book." God Almighty himself offers this as proof. Fulfilled prophecy as proof of the reliability that he is truly God and the reliability of scripture. Isaiah 41, 22 through 23 tells us, excuse me, tell us you idols what is going to happen. Tell us what the former things were so that we may consider them and know their final outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds so that we may know that you are gods. He's challenging these other idols, these other religions. Okay, where's your prophecy? And then in Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, God goes on to say, Remember the former things, those of long ago? I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I will make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. When God showed this to me, I wanted to know during the time in church history when the, when the gospel was just growing by leaps and bounds, when it was spreading most rapidly, is this the message that was preached? And I found a lot of verses implying that it was. In John 1.34, John the Baptist said, I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. In John 20, verses 30 through 31, the apostle John states the purpose for writing his gospel. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In Acts 2, 36, Peter says, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And we know on the day of Pentecost that 3,000, 3, men, unfortunately, that's all they counted back then, were saved on that one day. In Acts 10, 42-42, through 43 he says he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom god appointed as judge of the living and the dead all the prophets testify testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name let's take the example of philip in acts 8 5 the bible says philip went down to a city in samaria and proclaimed the messiah there And in Acts 8.35, it says, Then Philip began with that very passage, speaking to the Ethiopian eunuch, began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. In Acts 9.20-22, we see what Saul, later named Paul, immediately did following his conversion. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 22 goes on to tell us, Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. In Acts 13, 27, Paul said, The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Acts 6, 17, 2 through 3 shows us, As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Acts 18, 4 through 5, and verse 28 tells us, every Sabbath he, Paul, reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. Verse 28, For he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. Acts 20:23 20, tells us, They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God, And from the law of Moses and from the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus. There are many, many other verses that I found as I was going through this, but um, especially from from the Gospel of Matthew, that focus on Jesus being the fulfillment of Messianic prophecy. But I have been through many different uh, formal types of training, classroom situations where they are teaching you how to share your faith. And telling people that Jesus is the Messiah was never a part of any of that training. And I think we're missing out on something. I think we're missing out on that as a key piece in our sharing with other people because without the fulfillment of Scripture, we're just one out of the 4,000 that's out there. You know, let's sit down at a buffet table. I'll take a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of Buddha, a little bit of Confucius. Yeah, I'll just kind of make my own plate. No. Jesus proved, God proved that we're right. And some of you maybe were doubting, maybe like John, John the Baptist. Is it, are you really the one who was to come? And maybe you just needed to hear today. Yes, we're right. We're right. And the proof is the fulfillment of prophecies. So we preach Christ. As a fulfillment of prophecy, we also preach Christ crucified, Christ crucified as payment for our sins. A few weeks ago, Pastor Nick preached about Tetelestai, that when Jesus said, it is finished, it referred to this payment of debt, that it was paid in full. In Genesis 18.25, it says, God is the judge of all the earth. He is the original judge. Lawgiver, And in a very real way, he presides in our lives over a, over a spiritual court case. This used to be the way that the gospel was presented, but now we often see Jesus presented in an, a different way. We see Jesus as presented as, as a way to have a better life, your, your best life now, for example, that Jesus will somehow improve your life. And then people will have problems, as Jesus promised. In this world, you will have trouble. He promises us trouble. That's a great line for evangelism. You will have trouble. Jesus isn't just some Santa Claus that's just going to make everything go away. And some people think, well, this whole Jesus thing isn't working. I came to have everything be perfect, and it's not working. I'm, you know, I'm out of here. And they walk away. Because they came to Christ for the wrong reason in the first place. When people experience difficulty, some wander away from the faith, and we have stopped using the law for the purpose that it was designed. Romans 3.19 shows us the purpose of the law. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, and believers are not under the law. Believers are under grace. But unbelievers are still under the law. Now, we know whatever whatever the law says. It says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. In the morning, when the mirror is all fogged up from getting out of the shower, I normally will clean off just a little space right in front of my face because I really don't want to look at the rest of myself in the mirror. Okay? Just, Just being honest. And then we had... And then we had picture day at work, and I wasn't feeling good, and they said the attendance was mandatory, and I was trying to get out of it, but I couldn't, and it was one of those northern Australia kind of pictures, you know, where it's just from the waist up, you know, they don't, don't really care what's down under, and um, so, you know, kind of like, like the Zoom meetings during the, you know, for those who had home offices. Uh, during the pandemic. You know, it's just from the waist up. That's all you're going to see, OK? It doesn't really matter if you're wearing pajamas or anything. It doesn't matter. So, um, so I took my picture, and they emailed me the photo. And, <laughs> and my first reaction is, wait, who's that? Who? I didn't even recognize myself. Worst picture I have ever taken in my life. My second reaction is, oh, no, I'm going to have to get a new job. <laughs> Because that picture is attached to every single email that you send, and there is no way I am sending that picture out to everybody who I'm sending emails out to. I'll just text him from now on. (laughs) Maybe I'll just call. Maybe we'll just do a face-to-face. I'll just walk over to you. I'm just going to stop doing emails from now on. The Bible says the law is like a mirror that shows us the sin that God sees when he looks when he looks at our heart, it reveals all of those down-under things we hide from our friends and our family and those things. We even avoid thinking about ourselves in our own life. When we present the Ten Commandments to unbelievers, God uses that to convict them that they are sinners in need of salvation from God's judgment to come. As believers, we're not under law but under grace, but 1 Timothy 1, through 8-11 tells us this. The law is made for sinners. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is not made for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars. What? Liars? That's in this list? Lie, you know, you mean that little white lie that I told puts me in this list? Yes. And perjurers. And for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. In fact, the Bible goes goes on to say in James 2.10, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Darren, that sounds pretty harsh. I don't want to condemn someone and turn them away from Jesus. And I hear that. But if someone was suffering from a disease and you were able to diagnose that disease, you would lovingly tell them that they needed treatment. In fact, one of the most loving things we can do is to show someone their true spiritual condition. Not in a way where we say, you're a sinner and you need to repent. But... You need Jesus. In John three sixteen through eighteen, Jesus said, "Unbelievers are condemned already, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life." And ever, lots of people know that verse, but keep on reading. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Sounds good. Keep on reading. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. That's the mirror. That's the mirror that so many people need to see. That's the reflection. That's the truth. In Romans 3.23, we see that salvation is the result of Christ paying our death penalty for us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 goes on to say, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Just like when we work and we earn our wages, when we sin, we earn an eternal, conscious, real hell. And though many people think they just need to do more good than bad that somehow it's gonna just gonna weigh out in the cosmic balance as if I can just do more good. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 shows us the people cannot save themselves. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God forbid if there was ever a time when you were in a courtroom and you had done something terrible and the judge set the fine at $500,000. $500,000 or 30 years in jail. And there's no way you can pay it. And they put you in handcuffs and they're leading you away. And a billionaire who you've never met stands up and says, I'll pay that. I'll pay that. That's what Jesus did for us. And it's not just some ticket to heaven that you stuff in your back pocket and live like the devil for the rest of your life. It's more like the prince of another country saying, I will take care of my children. Do you want to be one of my children? Which leads us to the final point of this passage, the foolishness of pride. The foolishness of pride. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31 says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you were in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Look at who Jesus called to be his apostles. Four fishermen a despised Roman tax collector, a political revolutionary, and then a handful of other guys who are so unnoteworthy, so bland that we don't know very much about them at all. Pride was the first sin. Lucifer tried to place himself above God and was cast out for that defiance. And then he came as a serpent, told Adam and Eve when he ate the fruit, when they ate the fruit, that their eyes, excuse me, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. That was the temptation, not to some fruit, but that they would be like God. In every instance of sin since the garden, whether we realize it or not, what we have told God is, God, I know better than you. God, I am I'm going to be God in this situation. Back in Paul's day, many believers thought that they could indulge in the sins of the culture. But we see in this passage that Paul warns them that our saving relationship with Christ is to be defined by humility, righteousness, and holiness. I've shared with a lot of people over the years, and normally when I'm sharing with Jesus, they reply to me in the first two words that that reply usually begins with is, I think. I think Jesus was just a good man. I think I'm a good person. I think God will let me into heaven. I think it doesn't matter what religion you follow as long as you're sincere. I think all roads lead to heaven. I think there is no God. And there are apologetic answers to these comments. But now... I started focusing on speaking to them about Christ crucified. Christ, the fulfillment of prophecy, and Christ's crucifixion and resurrection as payment for the penalty of our breaking God's law. I started doing that, and here's what God's been doing. Here's what God's been doing. A week and a half ago, uh, this guy comes up to me at work, and he says, just out of the blue, he says, do you think we're living in the end times? And this other person who I was talking to, they, they expressed that they are feeling the weight of sin on their heart. Another person I was talking to, uh, they told me that they really feel like they're probably going to hell. And then two other unsaved people who I, I, I know that they don't know Jesus um, but I wasn't really good friends with them and now suddenly they're they're just coming to me and talking to me out of the blue and making that friendship and hopefully I'm, I'm hoping that that connection you know in just a little bit I'll be able to share with them that they are sinners present them with a the law and it sounds so foolish it sounds so foolish present them with the law present Jesus as the fulfillment of prophecy but my question to us is are you willing to be foolish? Because God's foolishness is way smarter than our strength. God's, God's foolishness is way smarter than all of our method, all of our methods, all the things that we can possibly come up with. God's foolishness is smarter than all of that. But to present people with the law and have that sin weigh heavy on their heart, have that conviction there. And help them to know, I am a sinner. I need to repent. A couple of weeks ago, and maybe you were too, but I was having a real hard time breathing uh, just from all the the ash that was coming from the wildfires in Canada. I don't know if you experienced that too. Um, But later, I was scrolling through Google on my phone and I saw all these issues in which Satan seems to be winning. We see it on TV or in movies like the one that just came out, The Sounds of Freedom, or on the Internet, or the news. And it struck me, spiritually, we are breathing the ashes of hell. That's what's happening in our world. We can address the issues, and we should, but deep down, people just need Jesus. Maybe if we present Christ Crucified, To our unsaved friends and family, we can begin to see the trend in backsliding reversed. That's my hope and prayer this morning. I know God's been speaking to me about this. I don't know if God's speaking to you about this or not. I've done my best to bring you to the foot of the cross. And I'm just going to leave you there. Maybe you needed to hear that there is a reason that we can be sure that we know that we have eternal life. That it's based on this fulfilled prophecy that we're not just one out of many religions out there. No, we have the truth. We have the only truth, and the world needs this truth. Maybe you're one of the 98% of believers who have never shared Jesus with anybody else. Only 2% of believers ever share their faith. I want to see that number increase. I want to see that number increase. I'm hoping that maybe today, just that simple phrase, Christ crucified. Christ, the Messiah, the fulfillment of prophecy, crucified for all the sins that we've, that we've committed. I'm hoping that maybe that simple message is something that you can just take with you and share with your friends and family. Maybe you don't know Jesus. Maybe today is the day when you're like, wow, there's a whole lot more to this than I thought there was. I didn't know if Jesus was just this good guy or not. I I don't know. Maybe today you're faced with the truth of the incredible way that God has over the centuries woven this fabric of faith. That he's brought you to this point in time where you realize, wow, this really is true. And you're confronted with the reality of all your down-under kind of sins, all the stuff going on beneath the surface. But you know God sees it, and you know that you need forgiveness. You know that you need to follow Christ. Maybe today is the day when you when you tell Him, "Yeah, I need that. I need You, Jesus." I don't know how God's speaking to you, but if He's speaking to you, talk back. Talk back to him. We preach Christ crucified, and I hope you will too.